You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. Matthew 27, beginning in verse 57. When it was evening, there was a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut out in the rock, and he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the the other Mary were there, sitting opposite to the tomb. Bow with me, please, for a word of prayer. God in heaven, we ask and beseech you, O Lord, to visit us with the power of the Spirit of God. O God, anoint the hearing and preaching of your word and encourage and strengthen us, we pray. May Christ, in all of his honor, be esteemed among us as he is preached. Would he be used to, would he, would he use the preaching to draw sinners to himself? O God, guide all that takes place. We are fully dependent upon you. Amen. So, We're in this last section of Matthew, and as John noted, it has been a while since we've been in Matthew, but I've quite enjoyed it, and and we will be done within the next month or two, I imagine, God willing. But by this point in Matthew, Christ has been crucified, and of course we know that he rises again because you know how this story goes, but at this point in the narrative, he is dead. So he is dead. And the disciples have been scattered. They've run and hid. Judas, of course, has hanged himself. Peter's denied the Lord three times. And so the tension at this point is we're left wondering with Christ hanging on the cross dead, Who will bury our Lord? Who will bury him? Now, the Romans who crucified him would have had no problem feeding him to animals, wild animals, foxes, coyotes, carrion birds. In fact, if you remember, he was crucified at Golgotha, the place of the skull. And one of the reasons it was called the place of the skull is there would have been putrefying skulls on the ground because it was the place of death and the Romans would have left the cadavers to simply rot. And so we're wondering, are they going to treat the body of our Lord this way? If you haven't read the story before. The Romans would have had no problem leaving him to be devoured by filthy wild animals like they would devour roadkill. And they would have had no problem throwing him into the garbage dump outside Jerusalem that burns profusely named Gehenna. They would have no problem with suffering the body of our Lord with such indignities. And with the disciples now being scattered, with Judas having done himself in with self-murder, and with Peter having denied our Lord... Who will offer Jesus an honorable and dignified burial? 
Will he have a funeral fit for a king and a tomb fit for a king? And in an ironic twist of the plot, God raises up some unlikely characters to get the job done and to give the body of our Lord care and honor and to bury him with dignity and to offer him an appropriate funeral. And this is the funeral of our Lord, believe it or not. As we come to this point of Matthew, having been in Matthew for several years now, this is the funeral of Jesus Christ. And the ironic twist of the plot, and this is, by the way, how the Lord works, isn't it? Is when you wonder if all is lost, God's got something going on where you don't expect it. And there's a little ironic twist that just kind of shows up to save the day. This is the way our Lord works. And so someone shows up to take care of the body of our Lord. And my sermon this morning will divide into four headings. Number one, we shall be introduced to Joseph of Arimathea and also to his friend Nicodemus. Although Nicodemus doesn't appear in Matthew, he certainly appears in the Gospel of John assisting Joseph in this funeral. Beyond the introduction to Joseph of Arimathea, we will see Pilate's order to produce the body of the Lord for Joseph. Then we will see the funeral that Joseph offers as he gives special care to the body of our Lord. And then we shall be introduced to the congregation that gathered at the funeral of Jesus Christ. His funeral. And I believe that this text serves several purposes, among which is to indicate that God's work will go on even when the leaders of God's work cower in hiding. And they run. God will raise up workers. Because it's not our work. It's His work. And if He finds us to be failures and cowards in the work, He'll raise up somebody else to get the job done. And beyond that purpose of this text, that which we see in the text, we see that even as God brings Gentile converts into the kingdom, we saw the centurions offer an orthodox profession of faith last week. Those centurions who gathered at the foot of the cross and who participated in the crucifixion of our Lord declared, surely this was the Son of God. Even as Gentiles can come into the kingdom and the kingdom is opened up to the Gentiles at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, so he brings in the Jews. So that the gospel is available for Jew and Gentile alike, as we see here, this Jew, Joseph, come into the kingdom, and God's plan for Israel is not done. He still has his plan for the Jewish people. Beyond that, I think most importantly this morning, I think the most important thing that this text tells us is that the shame and reproach of the cross, 
The foolishness of the cross is what God uses to bring sinners into His kingdom. Look, if we want to bring people into the kingdom of God, we don't need some dog and pony show. I don't need to offer you some glossy advertising campaign. What we need is the clear proclamation of the reproach of the cross and invite sinners to join us in bearing the shame of the cross. So what happens here? That's what happens here. God uses the reproach of the cross to bring sinners into the kingdom. So let's just start by saying, before I get into my major headings that I offered you a little earlier, a few moments ago, let me just start by saying that there is an open invitation this morning, right now, while I'm preaching, to embrace the cross of Jesus. And if you haven't embraced the cross of Jesus, do it now. I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to come to Jesus today and receive full pardon for your sins. Today, as I lift him up, is Christ crucified for sinners. But as to my first heading, let me introduce to you Joseph of Arimathea and his friend Nicodemus. Introducing Joseph. We're told in verse 57 that it was evening. This is when we meet Joseph. And for the Hebrew mind, evening would have been sometime between 3 and 6, just before nightfall. In the afternoon, we know that Jesus gave up the ghost at 3. And so sometime between 3 and 6, we're introduced to Nicodemus and Joseph. And it's interesting to note that as if you turn over a page in the Bible to chapter 27, verse 1. Chapter 27 begins where? When morning came. And that's when Jesus was handed over to the chief priests and the elders to be tried in his show trial in the kangaroo court of the Sanhedrin. And then here we are at the end of the day, the evening at the end of the daylight, and now what's happening in our text, it starts with Jesus being handed over for the show trial, and now we have Jesus being buried at his funeral. What, a, what an eventful day, isn't it? Wouldn't you say that was an eventful day? Jesus is handed over. Judas hangs himself. The Sanhedrin does a little show trial and offers a false Verdict pronouncing Jesus a blasphemer who turns him over to Pilate's court. And Pilate knows he's innocent, but notwithstanding the knowledge of Jesus is innocent, he caves because he's a wet noodle politician. He caves to the demanding crowds. Has Christ handed over to be crucified where Christ is shamed, mocked, tortured, killed, and now we end the day with his funeral? What a day. What a day. It's evening time. And in evening time, in chapter 27, verse 57, we're introduced here, when it was evening, there was a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph. We're introduced to Joseph of Arimathea, who was also a disciple of Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea, we're told, one of the first things we're told about Joseph outside of his name is that he was rich. He was a rich man. He's very wealthy. 
had a lot of money. He was a man of status in Jerusalem. We're told he's from Arimathea, which is a city northwest of Jerusalem that is also known as in Scripture as Ramathaim, and it was the birthplace of the prophet Samuel. But I don't believe he lived in that village. I believed he lived in Jerusalem, but he would have been born in that village. And the reason I believed he lived in Jerusalem is because he had his own tomb built in Jerusalem. And he was on the Sanhedrin council in Jerusalem, we are told. We're told in verse 57 of today's text that he was a disciple of Jesus. And Math, or sorry, Mark and Luke tell us that Joseph of Arimathea wasn't just a disciple of Jesus. He wasn't just a rich man. He wasn't just from Arimathea. But he was actually, believe it or not, a member of the Sanhedrin. A member of the Sanhedrin. Luke says that he was a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. So this tells me that as dark and vile and dingy as the Sanhedrin had become, God had preserved one honest man on the Sanhedrin. And, and what was the Sanhedrin, if you remember? Well, the Sanhedrin was the 71-member Supreme Court of Judea. It was the highest court in the land, and it functioned as a parliament, a senate, and a court all in one. And it had 71 members on it. And the 71-member panel, court, high court of Israel, condemned Jesus to death as a blasphemer in a show trial, in a demonstration of their own apostasy and forsaking of God. And in demonstrating their own apostasy, in demonstrating their own apostasy, they invited the terrible judgments of God upon the nation of Israel. But today we find out that there was one man on the Sanhedrin who had preserved his integrity through the whole process, and that is Joseph of Arimathea. One man. There might have been two men, actually, but certainly one man. Nicodemus would have been the potential other man, but I'll talk about him in a moment. The Gospel of John tells us that Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple of Jesus, but John 19, verse 30 says, he did so secretly, he was a secret disciple of Jesus for fear of the Jews. He was a secret disciple. One of the things you, you're going to learn as a Christian when you get to heaven is that I think there's going to be a lot of people in heaven you didn't expect to be, see there. And I think there's probably going to be a lot of people in hell you didn't expect to be there too. But if Joseph of Marathea tells us one thing, it's that there's a lot of people that are going to be in heaven that you didn't expect to be there because God preserves his secret disciples in unlikely places. And here is a man that was quietly maintaining his integrity on the Supreme Court of Israel, although the entire court, with the exception of one and maybe two, was given over to Satan. It had become a literal hellhole on earth. Nicodemus, I introduce you to him too. He's not mentioned in Matthew's gospel, but... Joseph, we should know, didn't operate alone, but he operated with Nicodemus. Nicodemus is introduced to us in John's gospel. And you'll remember Nicodemus is the man in John chapter 3 that went up to our Lord and asked him how to enter the kingdom of heaven. And our Lord said to him, in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. And he thought that was kind of a weird answer. So he followed up with the question, how must a man be born again? Must he enter his mother's womb a second time? Jesus explained the second birth to him. 
We find out later in John, or sorry, in that passage of John, part of John, that Nicodemus was a Pharisee, so likely, very likely a member of the Sanhedrin. And then we find later in John that Nicodemus was there at the burial of our Lord with Joseph of Arimathea, and at the burial of our Lord, he produced 75 pounds of ointments or spices to anoint the body of our Lord, which was a very expensive gift at the funeral of our Lord. So, I've introduced you to Joseph of Arimathea and to Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. I'll tell you what the Pharisees were. They were the religious leaders in Israel. They were the enemies of Christ. They were corrupt. Many of them were members of the Sanhedrin. And what was the Sanhedrin? I already said to you, it was the highest court in Israel. It was a 71-man panel. It, it operated as the Senate, the Parliament, and the Supreme Court all in one. And it was before that court that our Lord was tried in the show trial. And there was at least one man on that court that would not consent to their godless ways. And that was Joseph. And so I find Joseph to be a rather intriguing man. Because in the shadows, God ironically has a disciple that he has set apart for himself and that he's going to use in a very special and very significant way. Joseph of Arimathea. That's my introduction to Joseph. And by chance, Nicodemus. I move on to the next heading, having introduced to you Joseph, to talk about Pilate's order. Pilate gives you an order, or gives an order. He issues an order here. Joseph asked Pilate for Christ's body, and Pilate ordered it to be given to him in verse 58. Look at what it says. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. That's Joseph went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. Now, who's Pilate, you might ask? Well, Pilate was the Roman governor of Judea. So Judea was subjected to two different governments. One was the Jewish government, which was represented in the Sanhedrin, and the other was the Roman government. Because Judea had been conquered by a foreign entity, Rome. And so the Romans let the Sanhedrin operate, but they limited the power of the Sanhedrin, and they appointed their own governor over the Sanhedrin and over Jerusalem, who had more power than them. And if you remember, one of the things that Rome stripped from the Sanhedrin was its ability to execute criminals. So the Sanhedrin wasn't able to execute criminals, but Rome was able to execute criminals. So if, one of the, if the Jews wanted to execute their criminals, the Sanhedrin ruled that a man should be executed, they would turn him over to Pontius Pilate. And so when the Sanhedrin falsely convicted our Lord Jesus of blasphemy, they handed him over to Pontius Pilate, and he wasn't tried for blasphemy before Pontius Pilate, he was tried for treason before Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate believed that Jesus was an innocent man, he didn't believe he was a traitor to Rome. However, because he was pressured by the crowd and he was a man who was of weak will, he was a political man, he was a wet noodle politician, he capitulated to the crowd and reluctantly handed Jesus over to be crucified. Now Joseph, to set this whole thing up and try to explain the text to you, likely had access to Pilate because of his status as a rich man and a member of the Sanhedrin. Do you hear me? He used his status for the good of our Lord. 
He was a rich man. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. And he used his status as a rich member of the Sanhedrin for the good of our Lord. This tells us, by the way, if you look at the story where Jesus talks about it's more difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to go through an eye of the needle. If you remember that story, the point of that story is to tell us that what is impossible with man is possible with God. Because this story tells us that both the rich and the poor get into heaven. And what they need to do is to hold on by, to Christ by faith. Now, as we kind of, ex, if I try to understand and explain the context of why Joseph asked Pilate for the body of Christ, we need to understand that, as I noted earlier, the Romans had little regard for the human body. And Joseph wanted to treat the body of Christ with dignity. It was a concern to him. And Pilate likely, and we know really from the text earlier, that he had a level of remorse for handing Jesus over to be crucified, which might be why he was so willing to order that Jesus' body be turned over to Joseph at Joseph's request. But the Romans had little regard for the human body, and they'd think nothing of having it burned in the, in the dump outside Jerusalem called Gehenna, or fed to wild animals. In fact, the, the Romans had no regard for human life. They were murderous people. One of the things that the Romans were known for in, in their empire is if a woman didn't want to keep her baby, she would just leave the baby in the gutter and let it rot. This is how terrible people they were. And one of the Christian things the Christians came known for in the early centuries was to go and rescue those babies and take care of them because they loved children, as Jesus did. But the, Jew, or the Roman people had no regard for the human body and wouldn't care if it suffered indignities in its burial or in its, after its death. But contrary to that, the Jewish view was that the human body bore the image of God. So humanity bears the image of God, body and soul together. The soul and the body bear the image of God. And because the body bears the image of God, the body should be laid to rest with dignity. It should be buried with care and respect in anticipation of the resurrection. And this is the, I guess you could say, the clash in the worldviews that are going on right here. Because the Romans, especially someone who was convicted of treason, would think nothing of subjecting Jesus' body to all kinds of dignities, indignities, being eaten by animals, thrown into fire, whatever. Whereas Joseph had a worldview where he believed that the body should be taken care of and protected and treated with honor and regard because the body bore the image of God. And we really should take on the same view as the Jews, by the way, because this is a biblical teaching. They were right on this. The human body bears the image of God, and it should be treated with dignity and respect Especially after the point of death when the body itself is helpless, those who are left behind are left with the responsibility of treating that body with dignity. And this ought to, in the Christian mind, rule out any option other than a burial. It ought to rule out the option of cremation. Christians historically have not cremated their dead, they've buried their dead. They've done so to treat the body with with dignity and honor, and that it was the pagans or the heathens that would, in fact, cremate their dead. And so it's important for us to remember that the biblical teaching is such that God expects us to honor those 
who die by honoring their body and to honor the Lord by honoring their body. In fact, if you follow the news at all, you might have heard that there are certain movements and apparently there are certain states that have legalized it whereby they subject the body to a rapid form of decomposition so that the body is turned into compost and will be used as compost in a garden. And so this is going on in some places right now. Some of the ways they do this is by putting the body underwater so that the body rots very quickly and then is spread as compost. But here's how we got to the point where as a society we're okay with composting bodies because there was a couple generations ago when they became okay with cremating bodies. If you can cremate a body, you can compost a body. That's unchristian. I hope you understand that is what I'm trying to drive home. Is that we ought to have the attitude of Joseph of Arimathea where we say, no, we should not treat the human body with indignity. Instead, we should treat the human body with respect and honor because it bears the image of God and we believe in the resurrection and therefore the human body is to be treated with honor by being buried. Okay? In fact, in fact, if you look at Deuteronomy, you don't need to turn there. It should be on the, on the screen. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23 tells you how to deal with a criminal who has been executed for his crimes. And what does it say? His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Even criminals who are cursed by God and hanged for their sins, their bodies are to be buried. So if a criminal's body, a man who dies in disgrace, is to be buried, how much more a good man? The only instances of burning bodies in the Bible is when somebody is treated with indignity at death. And so we ought to follow Joseph's example here. And Matthew Henry says, Care is to be taken of dead bodies, of good men, for there is a glory intended for them at the resurrection, which we must hereby testify our belief of. And so this is what Joseph does. And, and by the way, it, it costs Joseph a lot of money to do this, as we'll see. It would have been cheaper for Joseph to cremate him. It would have been cheaper for Joseph just to let the body rot with the animals. But Joseph loved our Lord. Joseph loved God. Joseph wanted to honor our Lord. And by wanting to honor him, he pays a great price for our Lord to be buried. And this should be the practice of the Christian church. We should see our brothers and sisters who die in Christ is worthy of receiving the sacrifice of a good and proper funeral, even if it costs more, so that they can be buried in the ground. This is the Christian practice. And so Joseph petitions Pilate, and Pilate gives the order, and the body's turned over to Joseph. We move on. We move on. We're introduced to Joseph. Pilate gives the order. Now our third heading. And what's our third heading? Joseph's special care for the body. Joseph's special care for the body. And Nicodemus' care, too. We'll talk about him a little bit. Notice all the verbs in verse 59 and 60. Look at verse 59 and 60. And I'm going to highlight the verbs as I read these two verses. Notice the verbs and notice who the subject of the verbs is. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it 
in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock, and he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. You see all the verbs? I highlighted them in my reading by offering a little bit of extra pronunciation to them, emphasis. Who's, who's, the, ob, who, who's the subject of the verb? It's Joseph. In two, in two verses, how much action does Joseph commit? Right? The idea is that he's busy here. He's doing a lot of things to take care of the body of our Lord. And doing a lot of things to take care of the body of our Lord, it is showing us how concerned he is that this is done properly. And by the way, if you've been following along with us for a while, you'll have noted that nobody's really done anything good for Jesus in a while. Everything they do is they, they give him a false trial, they hand him over to be crucified, they spit on him, they slap him around, they put a crown of thorns on his head, they nail him to his cross, they stand there and mock him and blaspheme him and offer all kinds of false allegations against him. So nobody's done anything good for Jesus for a while, and this is the first time that somebody's actually done a good action for Jesus Christ in a little while in the Gospel of Matthew, isn't it? So it's like Christ is dead, and he's atoned for our sins, and good things are starting to happen again. It's like the sun's starting to rise, even though it's the end of the day. Things are getting a little brighter here in the moment. Well, he took the body, and that, by the way, him taking the body rendered Joseph ceremonial unclean by touching a dead body. So Joseph wouldn't be able to associate with the Sanhedrin until he was made clean. So by associating with Jesus Christ, he touches the dead body of Christ, and by touching the dead body of Christ, he's now ceremonial unclean. And by ceremonial unclean, he is now outing himself as somebody who cared for the body of Christ. He's separating himself from the Sanhedrin. It's important for us to understand that ceremonial uncleanness is not sin in the Old Testament. And that gives us a little bit of a hint that there's a distinction between the moral law and the civil, or sorry, the moral law and the ceremonial law. There's a distinction because ceremonial uncleanness was not sin. But it was ceremonial uncleanness, and so by becoming ceremonial unclean, he outed himself as somebody who was caring for the body of Jesus Christ. And he wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, verse 59, which represents Christ's righteousness imputed to us, and it points to the respect and reverence towards Christ that he had. And then in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock, he placed Jesus. Pay attention to this. This is important. In his own new tomb which he had cut in the rock, that's where he placed Jesus. Now this tomb was a man-made cavern which was chiseled into a massive rock of the mountain so that the entirety of the rock, the top, the bottom, each side, and the back, was all rock. There's no way to dig under it. There's no way to dig inside it. There's no way to come through the back. There's no way to come through the ceiling. The only way you can get it out, in and out of this tomb is through the entryway. And so this is the tomb. Someone had to chisel it in. It was an expensive enterprise, and it was only the rich that could afford this. These types of tombs were steeled with a, or sealed with a disc-shaped rock that would have rolled down a hill, lodged into something in which it was carved out of the rock to fasten it so it couldn't be moved forward or backwards, and the only way to dislodge this disc 
would be to push it uphill, which would have been near impossible without the effort of multiple men. So the tomb was, would have been sealed. This was an expensive tomb. And so it says in verse 60, what did he do? He laid it in a new tomb, which he had cut in the rock, and he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb. And what did he do? He went away. He just left it. He didn't look for any credit. He didn't look for any praise. He did his job, and he left. He wasn't looking for a big show. He did what he had to do, and he moved on. This was, we're told emphatically, that this was his own tomb. So, so think about Joseph here. He's just invested a lot of money. Some, you know how people do this. Be, before they die, what do they do? They buy their own plots in the ground, right? They write it in their will how they'd like to have their ceremony or their funeral conducted so their family doesn't have to think about it and their family doesn't have to think about the plot and they might have a special place where they want the plot and they buy it for, so that their family doesn't have to buy it. People do this. And this is what Joseph did. And because he was a rich man, he bought a very expensive plot. He had it custom chiseled. And in the plot, you put the body and you... Have, it, have the disc roll in front of it. So this was a, a great sacrifice for Joseph. He sacrificially gave to our Lord in a way that nobody would have known. And he did it quietly. And not only did he sacrificially give to the Lord, it, it was a good tomb. It wasn't some cheap tomb. Now, certainly a man of means like Joseph was could have bought some cheap plot. But he didn't buy a cheap plot. He bought an expensive plot that was meant for himself, but he thought, this man is a king. He's getting a good plot, which ought to tell us something. When we give to the Lord and we work for the Lord, he doesn't get our cheap efforts or our cheap goods or our cheap gifts. He gets our best because he's worth it and he deserves it. And this is what Joseph does. And by the way, this doesn't only inconvenience Joseph. This isn't just a take from his pocket. This is a take from his family's pocket because his family would have had an inheritance. And so now all of a sudden, his family's going to lose out because he's figuring he's going to, if he's going to die and go into another more expensive tomb, he's going to have to buy a new one. But the Lord Jesus, he figures, is worth it. He's worth it. Only the best for the Lord will do. And this is what Joseph does. According to John chapter 19, verse 39, Nicodemus was there. He was the Pharisee who was following Jesus. And he brought 75 pounds of spices to honor Christ's body. The Jews didn't embalm the body like the Egyptians did. The Jews covered it with spices and good sense. The death of Herod the Great, 500 men brought spices. Gamaliel the elder, there were 80 pounds of balsam. This is a typical Jewish funeral that Jesus is being offered here. And not just a typical Jewish funeral, a funeral fit for a king. 75 pounds of spices. A beautiful tomb that was built by Jerusalem's, one of Jerusalem's richest, most noble men, Joseph of Arimathea. Sacrificially giving out of his family, out of himself. Why? Because he thought it was an honor to give something good to the Lord. He thought the Lord was worth it. And the irony of ironies is that the two men that participated in the burial of Christ to give our Lord the honor that he deserves were men who had come off the Sanhedrin council. The council that condemned Jesus to death. 
R.C.H. Lenski says just that. He says, no man would have guessed that one, yea, two, of the very members of the Sanhedrin would give a rich burial to Jesus, who the Sanhedrin as such brought to the cross. Nicodemus and Joseph identify with the crucified Christ voluntarily. And by the way, there's two ways that they, identify, they risk themselves in identifying with the crucified Christ. Probably three, actually. The first is they touch an unclean body, which renders them ceremonial unclean. And rendering themselves ceremonial unclean, they've, out, they've now outed themselves likely to the Sanhedrin. Two is the Gospel of Luke tells us that the Jews made a rule that anyone who identifies with Jesus Christ is automatically excommunicated from the synagogues. So they've now risked excommunication from the synagogues. And three is, a criminal who was crucified in Rome or Judea was the lowest form of human life that you did not want to associate with. There was so much shame and indignity attached to a man who was crucified that you would not want to, um, you would not want to declare that he was your third, fourth, fifth, or sixth cousin. You wouldn't be on associated with anyone like that. You didn't go to school with him in kindergarten and forget his first name. Nothing. Because he was such a shameful character. They've risked being excommunicated from the synagogues. They've touched the dead body of our Lord, rendering themselves ceremonial unclean. And they've identified with the shame and the reproach of the cross. These two men, one of them for sure is rich, and likely Nicodemus is rich too if he can afford 75 pounds of spices. Nicodemus and Joseph identify with the crucified Christ voluntarily, knowing that such actions could get them excommunicated from the synagogue and render them as untouchables by the Sanhedrin where they were positioned as officers. Joseph displays courage. Joseph displays generosity in providing Jesus with this burial. He could have just paid for a cheap burial. He didn't because Jesus deserves the best and Joseph displays faithfulness. That is the funeral of our Lord, as Joseph and Nicodemus care for the body. Let's look at the congregation that gathered for our Lord's funeral. Verse 61, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. Mary and Mary pop up again. They were already present in verse 55 through 56. In verse 56, it says, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. They were standing there watching Jesus be crucified. It says in verse 55, there were many other women watching. There were two women that left the many women to go to the funeral. And so here we have a funeral conducted by two officers of the Sanhedrin, the high court of Israel that is watched by two women who followed Jesus all the way to the point of crucifixion. These women cared for Christ. Now Mary Magdalene, Despite all the terrible rumors that people say about her, even today, despite all of the vicious rumors people say about her, the only thing we know about her is that she was exercised of seven demons by Jesus. And she had the honor of being at Christ's funeral. So Jesus received an honorable burial witnessed by a small congregation who saw that he received an honorable burial and noted the tomb in which he was buried at. That is the funeral of our Lord. Now, I started the sermon by telling you that there's a great tension in this text. 
And the great tension is this, who will bury Jesus? Will he receive an honorable burial? Who will bury him? Because the disciples have run and hid, right? Judas hanged himself. Peter has denied him three times. Who will bury Jesus? And God provides two unlikely characters to get the job done from the Sanhedrin. A small, little fraction of the Sanhedrin. Isn't that ironic? Isn't that ironic how God works that way? You'd think God would raise up someone from somewhere else, but he raises up two men to honor the Lord from the Sanhedrin council that crucified him. And who gathers for his funeral but two women? You know, if you want to talk about small minorities or small fringe minorities, this is the way it works. Isn't it true? When darkness covers the face of the earth and wickedness takes over, it's God that raises up a small fringe minority. And this is what he did for the funeral of our Lord. And isn't it ironic? Some of you, I think, as you, as you want to think of the irony, all seems lost, doesn't it? With how bad it's getting at the crucifixion. Everything seems lost. The world seems lost, even to the point of Jesus being crucified, the disciples running away. Everything seems like it's gone down the tubes. An irony of ironies, where you wouldn't expect it, God raises up two men to show honor to our Lord. This is the way he works. He works in ironic little twists. He does it in the Bible. He does it in real life. And by the way, I think there's probably a few of you, as you've looked at the news events of this last week and you've considered certain rulings that have come down from a certain commission in Ottawa, some of you might feel disheartened or even gutted from what was said. But let me tell you something. The Christian ought not be disheartened. Because the Christian understands that God always is working somewhere in the shadows. And there's things that are going on in places that you've never heard about with people that you've never known, with faces that you've never seen and names that you've never heard who are doing things for the Lord and the Lord's preparing something to show the world that He's powerful. We don't look to the courts for justice. We look to Almighty God for justice. If He decides to use the courts, let Him. If he decides to break the courts with his heavy hand, let him. But eventually, God will vindicate the righteous and bring justice. But this tension is there, and God provides two unlikely characters to get the job done, and God shows that he has his secret disciples in many places. As Matthew Henry said, Christ has more secret disciples than we are aware of. And God remain, re maintains an unlikely remnant in an unlikely place and we might be surprised at who makes it to heaven. And God doesn't depend on our faithfulness to do our, His work, because if we run like a bunch of cowards and hide like a bunch of cowards, God will raise up some unlikely candidate to get the job done. This is what the Lord does. His work's not our work. His work is His work. And if we decide that we don't want to be faithful in the vineyard that God's put us in, He will raise someone else up. He does not need us, and he will honor those people for it. 
Because there are four people in the Bible mentioned at Jesus' funeral, and all of them are mentioned, and all of their names are preserved for all of eternity, is the ones who had the honor of being at the funeral of our Lord. Imagine that. God doesn't depend on our faithfulness. And God, by the way, saves the rich and He saves the poor. Who were the disciples? Well, the disciples, the most of them, were a bunch of hillbilly rednecks from backwoods Galilee, weren't they? Northern Israel and the, the people of Jerusalem, the fancy people of Jerusalem, would have perceived them as a bunch of hillbilly rednecks coming down to Jerusalem. And God saved the hillbilly rednecks to do a work. But He doesn't just save the hillbilly rednecks. He saves a fancy man from the Sanhedrin. So that the fancy man and the hillbilly rednecks can sit down at the table of the Lord. This is what our Lord does. He saves all kinds. He saves Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, redneck and cultured. Every one of them are welcome into the kingdom of God. You find yourself in any one of those categories or another one of categories that I didn't mention, come to Christ today and be saved because you are welcome. And there's a seat at the table for you. If you will yet entrust yourself to Jesus Christ. And just as God brought those Roman centurions to the place where they declared that Jesus was the Son of God, so He saves these Jewish members of the Sanhedrin, indicating to us that the gospel of Jesus Christ, His cross, has opened up the way of salvation to unite Jew and Gentile by faith in Jesus Christ. He's not done with the Jews yet, this text indicates. And it was the cross, by the way, I think this is the most important point. This was the most important point. It was the cross that drew these men into the open. It was the shame of the cross, the reproach of the cross, that drew these secret disciples of Jesus Christ out into broad daylight. It wasn't a dog and pony show. It wasn't a PR campaign. It wasn't someone with smooth words that tried to get cultural capital from the Sanhedrin. It was the shame and scorn of the cross that brought them out. And this is the power of God. The power of God is not demonstrated in our wisdom, in our knowledge, in our know-how. The power of God is in the cross. And it's the church's job to uphold the cross. And if we fail to uphold the cross, we lose the power of God. It's in the cross. It's in the cross. And these men saw the cross of Christ and they identified with its shame. They risked excommunication from the Sanhedrin and they likely outed themselves to the Sanhedrin by being declared unclean for touching the dead body of the Lord. And here's my question to you this morning. What's keeping you from the cross? Won't you come to the cross? Is it fear of friends? Employment being declared unclean by society? Is it the shame that you will experience? Well, this is what these men risked when they came to Christ. They risked being shamed. They risked rejection by family, friends, and employer. And they risked the 
being declared by unclean by society. None of these things are worth keeping you from everlasting life in Jesus Christ. In fact, every one of them should motivate you to come to Jesus Christ because it was the reproach of the cross that drew these sinners in. God uses the power of the cross to draw his elect into the kingdom. And as sure as the day is long, he's still doing the same today. It's the cross. It's the cross of our Lord Jesus that brings these men out into the open. So I've introduced you to Joseph. You've seen Pilate's order. You've seen Joseph's special care for the body. You've met the congregation. And I hope if you've learned anything this morning, I hope you've learned the power of the cross of Jesus to convert the sinner and draw his secret disciples out into the open to embrace obedience and faith in the kingdom of God.